So we are in Exodus 25 this morning. I'll encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Second book of the Bible, page 66, the ones in front of you there. Moses is on Mount Sinai. The Lord is giving him instructions, the blueprints for the tabernacle and all the furnishings of the tabernacle. Uh, We learned last week that this instruction is really from the inside out. Uh, The Lord is starting with with the best, the most important part of the tabernacle uh, in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark where His his presence would reside, enthroned above the cherubim, His foot on that box, on that footstool of the the testimony. Uh, And it was only the atonement cover that lay between the Holy God and the testimony, the covenant obligations that the people could not uh, keep. So the blood on the mercy seat is what allowed them to uh, meet with the Lord. So it's kind of a 30-second summary of last, last week's uh, sermon where we could not, could not miss the, atoning, the atonement cover that we have in the Lord Jesus. Um, so from here, we're going to move from the most holy place uh, back through the curtain into the front room of the tent, into the holy place of the tabernacle. And there are several items that are a part of this uh, room in God's house. And the first we're going to look at is the table and what was on that table. Um, like we did last week, I hope to continue this where it makes sense. Uh, we'll read the instruction given to Moses and then the, the parallel construction uh, several chapters later. So we'll begin in chapter 25. Uh, in verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make it and you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie, as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And in the parallel passage, chapter 37 Beginning at verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it a handbreadth wide and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. So the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, every word, stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank You for this Word, and we ask Your help now, Father, as we look to Your Word and submit ourselves to its instruction. Lord, we need You 
to work the truth of your word into our hearts, into our minds, that we might apply it well in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that your word stands forever. These words that I will speak in the next few minutes will dissipate quickly. But you are working your word to perform it. And it's in that that we trust. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, helping Reagan Tillman um, just last week uh, unload a moving truck uh, into a storage facility. Some of you will remember uh, the Tillmans. They're looking to uh, move back to this area next month as he starts a position in the National Guard. Uh, But we moved most of their earthly belongings into a storage facility over there by Sam's Club. And uh, so this was, you know, all the book boxes and the bookshelves and the dressers and the bed frames uh, and the dining room table. Uh, and you can wrap up most things when you're moving in order to, to protect them. Some of them you don't necessarily, but typically the dining room table is something you wrap up, something you want to protect. Um, and so I, I, was, you know, I was considering this text, I was thinking about this uh, a little bit, Um, I said, you know, this makes sense. Dining room tables are important. They're they're really a central piece of furniture to any home, whether that's an apartment or a college dorm or a big house. Um, You know, one of the things we set up first is the table, maybe after the bed, (laughs) but then it's the dining room table. Uh, It's a place in our home where we sit and we dine and we... You know, share life together. Some of our fondest memories are around the table. Uh, maybe today that will be the case. So that is no less true in the house of God. Uh, there is a table present showing that the king is in residence in this place. Uh, there's a place to dine with him. You know, when the Tillmans move into their house, they're going to be eager to set up that table. They'll feel more like home um, that central place to eat together. And so the, the, the tabernacle is the Lord's dwelling, His home among the people. And so you think, well, what does this table and, and the bread on the table really mean for the people? What does it mean for us? I'm thinking about all the details that we read here about the tabernacle and the furnishings that went into the tabernacle. It's important for us, I think, right at the outset to, to exercise a little caution or at least use some good interpretive sense as we're reading through this. Not every detail is symbolic or should be interpreted in that way. You know, many of the details that we've just read are functional. Uh, the legs on the table, the golden rings, the poles used to carry, they all served a functional purpose um, for the people. Um, so we consider the details in context and allow the New Testament to help us in unlocking uh, the symbolism and, and, and taking us where the symbol is designed to take us. In the case of the table that we've just read about, the, the thrust of this message, the main connection to Christ is not the table, but what sat on the table, what it was used for. So, so we need to keep that in mind, even as we consider the, the details of uh, the furnishings and the tabernacle. Think about all the construction details that are not given. Um, there's a lot that is left up to 
you know, Basileel and his craftsmanship and his artistry. I mean, what about the thickness of the gold you know, over these pieces? Or the dimension of these rings? Or the method of joining the wood? The thickness of the table legs? Well, we're not given any of those details. This was left up to uh, the craftsmen that the Lord had equipped uh, for that purpose. And I think this is consistent. We see in many clear and important instructions from the Lord where the word is given to us, but it's the walk of the Christian that really you know, brings detail, kind of unfolds that. Go and make disciples of all nations. When are you supposed to go? How are you supposed to go? What does making disciples look like? What's the method? You see, this is, these are details as we seek the Lord's guidance, as we pray, as we spend time in His Word that are revealed uh, to us. So here he's, he's put the symbolism. We learn more of Him, more of salvation that we have in Christ. So we're going to look at the presentation of the table and the participation at the table. Presentation and participation and we learn right away from the dimensions, the materials that are used, that this is a small table, but it's fit for a king. Not complex in its design, but it's ornate. The table, the moldings, the rings, the legs, the poles, they are all overlaid with gold, which makes this very similar to the ark. But in the case of the acacia poles here, they are stored somewhere else. They're not actually stored in the rings of this table. Uh, a ring, uh, a rim around the edge with additional molding. Most would agree that this was to keep things from accidentally sliding off uh, the table. Very functional there. Um, it was ornate, but functional. That is, that's usually a trade-off for most products, right? Um, you want something simple and functional, or do you want something fancy but not so functional? In the case of the table, it's both. Even the utensils that were carried on the table, they're all made of gold. Plates, bowls, cups, pitchers that could be used for food offerings. But the only food kept on the table was the bread. That really tells us what, what this table was all about. It was a table of the bread of the presence. The bread was present before the Lord at all times. And if we go to Leviticus 24, it gives some more detail on how this how this worked. I'm going to read a few verses here from Leviticus 24. Verse 5, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So this bread is both a memorial and an offering to the Lord. Two piles of six loaves, kind of think of a flat cake where they could be stacked on top of each other that would sit on the table and then be replaced with new loaves every sabbath um, why bread why 12 loaves uh, that number is significant 
calls to mind the descendants of Jacob. It formed 12 tribes of Israel, so this, this makes sense. These are 12 loaves representing all the people of Israel. All of God's chosen. And we don't have to look back very far to see how the Lord has provided for all of His children. The bread, this manna, meets a very basic need for the people. becomes a staple for them. Here's how the psalmist celebrates the Lord's provision of bread. In Psalm 78, Yet He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. And then later in Psalm 111, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. So the people were to remember, to give thanks to God continually for His provision. The bread of the table in His presence was a picture of that. He cares for them. He's always watching over them. They they couldn't be lost. They couldn't sneak away from Him. Think of just like the the tabernacle uh, itself. God doesn't need bread. God doesn't need sustenance. He's self-existent. He is self-sufficient. The Lord doesn't depend on His people for anything, but because the opposite is true, there's bread on the table. The people are dependent upon Him. The bread showed them that their needs were always before the Lord, who was continually sustaining them. So the most important part of this presentation is the bread. Numbers 4 tells us that the bread actually traveled with the table when it was covered, along with the utensils, always before Him. The people always reminded to give thanks. And church, we need to hear the comfort in this, in this type of presentation in a very chaotic world. Our needs are ever before the Lord. He's the one who preserves us. And if God has saved us by His grace, He is more than capable of keeping us by His grace. I think God's grace, His initiative, His work unto salvation, it has a beginning and an end. It is a definite thing that He's in full control of. And when someone comes to Christ in repentance and faith, the Lord doesn't say, well, that's a good start. Glad you've come this far and sort of set that person down at the beginning of a maze and say, okay, there you go. And if you make the right turns and the right decisions, well, then you come to that finish and and then hear, well, well done, good and faithful. That's not what the Lord does. Um, He leads us. He provides for us. He fights for us. He holds us. And it doesn't take away the twists and turns along the journey, we're called to persevere. But the finish line, the well done, is a certain thing. It is secure in Christ. God's grace perseveres. When you and I can't make it to the end of the day, maybe the end of a sermon, without our hearts and our minds going who knows where. Here's what the Apostle Peter reminds the church. Right at the beginning, you know, first things first, before he gets into the details of his letter. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, is there any questions there? About who really controls the end game for those who are in Christ. Something else for us to consider as the priest you know, would place these, these loaves of bread on the table before the Lord, they, they represent the people. And the people are accepted before God. They're, they're a sweet-smelling offering to Him. And so our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, offers us before the throne of God the Father. And we go to a place like Hebrews 7 to see His continual intercession for us and where we're not a stench, but a sweet-smelling aroma to our God. And that it's out of gratitude for this that we offer ourselves continually before God as living sacrifices. We live quorum Deo before the face of God. That's actually the language that's used here in Exodus 25. This is the before-my-face bread that we read of here. So how would our days be different if we truly believe that and we live before the face of God? And we say, yep, I've got that. Or at least I've, I've got that in my, in my mind. But if we really live like that? I came across a little quote from Charles Spurgeon last week and some other reading. I started thinking about it more this week. He said, the unsaved sinner loves a salvation from hell. The true Christian loves a salvation from sin. Everyone desires to be saved from the pit. But it is only the child of God who pants to be saved from every false way. So would you and I be described as a child of God in that sense? Living before His face. So running hard in the way of holiness. I mean, that, that little quote sort of, and I think it's affirmed by Jesus, Matthew uh, chapter 25, Luke 13, that someone can have a confidence about you know, the, the so-called fire insurance. Someone can be confident of that and still be the unsaved sinner who has really no desire to put off the old self, to put on Christ. I was thinking through the attitude of Christians, my own attitude most days. It's, sort of, it's either a reactive or, or kind of a proactive holiness. The reactive holiness, which I think is the greatest danger, thinks, well, I know I'm going to sin today. Um, and I'll need to repent when that happens. And when it happens, I will. Um, if, if I can remember where it is I've... I've sinned. There is forgiveness in Christ. Now, nothing of what I just said is untrue. Um, but it's a very different attitude than if we approach each day thinking, I don't want to sin today. I don't want to be in that place where temptation hides. The sword of the Spirit, I, I've got that drawn. 
The very word of God drawn by my side. I mean, that is living before the face of God and not just turning toward the face of God when I think I need to or every now and then. The bread on the table continually before the Lord. We are offering our lives continually in gratitude for God's grace. So we have this presentation, but there's an important participation here at the table. Read in, in Leviticus 24 that Aaron the priest, they would eat the bread in that holy place. This was part of that fellowship offering. So they are eating a fellowship meal with the Lord. I think most of the food that was offered to the Lord was happening outside the tent, on that altar, and the, the smoke from the sacrifices going up to the Lord. Well, now this is, this is a meal much closer to the ark, much closer to the direct presence of God on the inside of, of the tent. And that's consistent with those who are bound together in covenant. They would eat together. Abraham eats with the Lord in Genesis 18. In the very last chapter in Exodus 24, Moses and the elders uh, eating and drinking in the presence of God. I love how the prophet Isaiah describes the Lord's renewed fellowship with Israel. Look at how he describes this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. The Lord wants to dine. He wants to commune with His people. So this meal, what it represents is, is moving us from the mountain to the tent. And each time that the, the priests or representing the people before God would eat this bread, it was a reminder of that communion, the oneness uh, that they shared with uh, the Lord. And that communion continues today. Not limited to the priests, not limited to the leadership in the church, but enjoyed by the priesthood of all believers. We commune with our God, commune around this table. And our feast, our bread is the true bread from heaven. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So it's here at this table where we feast upon Christ. Nourishment for our faith, our hope, our love for Jesus. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The Lord meets our every need. But with the bread on the table, He's teaching us what we really, really need. Our deepest need is to be restored to our God in sweet fellowship with Him. That's why He gives the bread. Deuteronomy 8, the Lord says this through Moses. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the people were to know, we are to know, that it's not the bread we really need, it's God Himself. 
We need His living Word. People needed to depend on God, just as you and I need to depend on Him today. I think it's so much easier to ask God for things, isn't it? So much easier to expect Him to do something for us than to really want more of Him. To crave more of this spiritual food for the contentment, satisfaction of our soul. I mean, we can have every material need met. You can be in the biggest house. You can drive the fanciest car. You can go to your dream school. You know, put every notch of education in your belt. Land the dream job. You can have all those things. You can have the most beautiful family where everyone actually likes each other and loves each other. That could all be true. You could still be a beggar in need of bread. We need the bread of life. We need Christ. You say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've got that. Okay. But do you want more of Him? Are you really hungry for Him? To be satisfied with more of Jesus. We must be willing to reorient our lives. Prioritize in a way that makes this feeding possible. We need to feast on the body, the blood of Christ, as often as we're able to do that. Think of what uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, he said, we little know how dependent our spiritual health is on little, regular, habitual helps and how much we suffer if we miss our medicine. I thought that was a good reminder. If you've got daily meds you need to take each day, you're going to suffer if you miss those. How we need the spiritual food spiritual medicine, the means of grace that God gives. So the bread was presented, set out in the presence of God in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Ark speaks of reconciliation, communion through atonement. The table speaks of gratitude. Dedicating ourselves to God who is the giver of our daily bread. Blood on the Ark, there's bread on the table. In John chapter 6, I've mentioned this already, there were people flooding to Jesus for what they could get from Him. I mean, He could fill their tummies. He's the guy you wanted around. But what they needed to learn was that only Jesus could satisfy their greatest need. Only Jesus could forgive and restore them to God. I mean, they, they could see Him. He was the presence of God in their midst, the true and living bread from heaven. Have you believed because you've seen me, Jesus said? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He is our bread. He is our fill now and forever. Let's thank Him for this. Lord Jesus, we thank You for feeding us with more of Yourself, the true and living bread from heaven. Each time we come to the table that You prepare for us, we celebrate the life, the union that we have with You. We thank You for this gift. And Lord, as this bread was present before You always, may we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to You on this day and each day that You give us. As we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.